You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning. Hello again. This is uh, one of my favourite passages in Scripture. It's just fantastic, isn't it? Jesus is so amazing. His beauty is exalted in this passage. We are in our final week in our three-week series on encounters with Jesus. And I've had a couple of weeks off uh, preaching, and so it feels just so good to be back this morning. I've uh, had flu for the last couple of weeks. This morning is the first morning that I've had clarity of thought. So let's hope the sermon reflects that this morning. But it just it feels good to be here together in church. But, you know, this is a great passage, but you know what? It's pretty confronting. It's pretty confronting, I think, for most people in the room, if you're anything like me, because this, the well-to-do, good moral person is condemned, aren't they? And the sort of unseemly, lowly person is exalted. So right in front of us, we have an opportunity to be challenged and encouraged. So that's my prayer this morning, that that would happen, that, we, that the walls wouldn't go up that actually they would come down and God would do his work this morning and he'd appropriately, by his spirit, challenge and encourage us. That's my prayer for this morning. So I think we need to pray together for God to do his work amongst us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We base our lives not on what I have to say, not on what someone else's opinion is, not on the person who speaks loudest or the most, but on you and your word. We trust it. We trust you to be our guiding light. We trust your word to be a lamp to our feet. And so, God, we open ourselves, we open our hearts, the very center of ourselves to you today. What do you want to say to us? Lord, help us not to be afraid to be challenged. And would you encourage us with the richness and the beauty of the gospel? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I want to say before, it's lovely to meet our small group leaders, isn't it? We have plans to start another mixed adults group very soon, which is exciting. So if you might be in that category, stay tuned, and we're going to get another group going really soon, hopefully in the next month or so. Okay. My family and I used to go pretty frequently to this quite nice resort in the Blue Mountains. We'd sort of go every year. It was a bit of a tradition, and it was great. Even my extended family would come along, especially my um, character, my nan. We call her Nana Jean. She's quite a character. And this one day, we're heading out of the resort into the car park, and a bit of a sort of kerfuffle happens. You know, you hear murmurings around us, and, and lo and behold, a famous person had entered our midst. And my nan was pretty excited to meet this person. She whispered, or not really whispered, she said pretty loudly that she had seen the one and only very famous Australian supermodel, Elle McPherson. This is 25 years ago, so well and truly in her heyday, Nana had spotted her. And, nana had, and my nana has the kind of this... this um, reputation for causing a scene in public. She's not one of those normal people who gets embarrassed. Everyone gets embarrassed around her. And so she, she was pretty convinced. She wanted to have an up-close and personal encounter with Elle McPherson. She wanted to see what an Australian supermodel was like up close. 
So instead of like being like a normal person, kind of casually maybe going up and asking for an autograph, she runs after her through the car park. Right now, Elle was a fair way ahead. So Elle, by the time Nana got anywhere near her, uh, Elle had jumped into the back of her hired car. He shut the door and it was sort of a dark, tinted window. Now, most people would leave it there, right? Most people would leave it there, not, not our Nan. Now, now, she goes up to the car and starts knocking on the window. I had this memory imprinted in my mind. I was only 10 years old, but imprinted in my mind of her looking in the glass and just knocking. Now, I'm not sure what she was expecting, whether she was expecting Elle to wind down the window and invite her to tea. That didn't happen. The rest of the family, like me, were just praying the ground would swallow us up whole. We're so embarrassed. But my nan, man, she just wanted to have an encounter with Elle. Now, I was only 10 years old at the time, so I didn't know who Elle McPherson was. Don't get me wrong, it would only take a couple of years to really figure out who Elle McPherson was and the significance of meeting her in real life. But I was 10. I, didn't, I was pretty nonplussed by the whole thing. But nan, she, was just, she wanted to have an up-close and personal encounter with Elle McPherson. Now, I wonder if you've ever experienced anything like this. You know, have you ever seen someone in public and thought, hang the public, hang the public embarrassment, I'm going to see what this person's like up close. I'm going to risk embarrassment, risk embarrassing my friends. Have you ever done that? Have you experienced something like that? Have you been with someone else when they've done that? When they've thought, hang the consequences, I'm going to have an encounter with this person and see what it's like up close. Well, today we're going to witness two people have an encounter with Jesus. And it's the same scene, it's one scene, but these two people have very different encounters with Jesus. Why do they? Their encounter with Jesus is really different because they see themselves very differently. Now, apart from Jesus, we've got just two characters in this story, right? We've got Simon, this guy called Simon, and a woman. We don't even know her name. Now, we're going to be traveling through this passage together. We're going to be spending some time on each one of these characters. And as we do... We've got to be asking this question, which one are we more like? Which person am I more like? Because how we see ourselves greatly affects how we see Jesus, which affects everything. Right? How we see ourselves, that's going to affect how we see Jesus, and that affects everything. All right, we're going to dive into a passage. It starts off like any good Saturday night does at a dinner party. Let's meet our host, Simon. Simon is the host of the past party. Who is he? Simon is a Pharisee, right? That is a religious leader of the day, a well-respected, most likely well-to-do, good moral person in the community. Think of someone well-respected in our community. It could be a minister or a churchman or just someone well-to-do, someone who would hold a party like this and was very well-respected in the community. Now, what strikes me is Jesus gets invitations from all different types of people. You notice that? Jesus has a reputation for hanging out with the down and outs so much, people call him a glutton and a drunkard. And yet he still still fields invitations from upright religious people like Simon. People from all walks of life are drawn to Jesus, and they still are today. So here's Jesus at Simon's pretty lavish dinner party, and we don't know why Simon's invited him. Maybe he's intrigued by his teaching. Maybe he wants to see a miracle. Maybe he wants to pepper him with some theological questions. We're not quite sure. But Jesus now is at this dinner party, and it's different from a dinner party that you or I might host in our homes. It's worth just spending a moment on setting the scene. 
in the middle of Simon's fairly large dining room would have been a low-to-the-ground dining table, and the guests surrounding it would have been on low-lying couches. So the guests would have been reclining on their left elbow uh, at the couch with their feet tucked in under them with their sandals off. This picture, I think, helps sort of set the scene. Here we can see here Jesus depicted in this painting, reclining on a, a sort of this low-lying couch, and you can see the woman there approaching Jesus, she would have had access to his feet. This is kind of helpful in painting the picture of this scene. And here we have the woman pictured. Well, let's get into these two characters. Let's look at this woman. Now, we're told that during the dinner party, this woman enters the house. Who is she? We don't know a lot about her. We don't even know her name. The text describes her as a woman who has led a sinful life. Now, that phrase literally translated means a woman of the city. So we can pretty, pretty you know, fairly assume, confidently assume, that she's a prostitute, a sex worker, a woman of the night. Now, what's a woman like that doing at Simon's house, at Simon the Pharisee's house? How did she even get in? Well, here's how... Um, these ancient banquets and our dinner parties kind of differ as well. See, back then, at these ancient Middle Eastern banquets, the doors of the grand house would have been open. And so uninvited guests would have been just free to come and go. They would have uh, stood sort of like the nosebleeds, if you will, stood at the back, surrounding the table, watching the guests, particularly if an interesting guest was in attendance. They were free to come and go and sort of eavesdrop on the conversation and, and maybe hang in the background and potentially get some scraps of food that the guests had finished with. But even though the doors would have been open to outsiders, it still took a lot of courage for this woman to show up there because she's an outcast, isn't she? Almost in every sense of the word. She is on the absolute lowest rung of the social ladder. Think about it. No one at that dinner party would have anything to do with it. They would have seen straight through her. This woman's maybe dirty, clean, certainly unloved, in a good sense, and ashamed, right? She doesn't belong there. But she's turned up. What happens next? Well, we can imagine her kind of walking in, you know, slinking into the background at first, sort of just disappearing into the background, sitting or standing at the back, going fairly unnoticed. But then she approaches Jesus. And something happens, something maybe she wasn't expecting. She's overcome, isn't she? Her encounter with Jesus is far more profound than maybe she thought. Possibly her purpose in coming was just to honour Jesus, right? to anoint Jesus with the perfume she'd brought, but a lot more happens. She starts to cry, not just a little bit. You know, maybe softly and quietly and a little bit at first, but then she really weeps. You've, you've never done that? Have you witnessed someone really crying, weeping, great big hacking sobs? Think about it. She washed Jesus' feet with her tears. That's a lot of tears to generate, right? This woman is having an emotional encounter with Jesus. And she then undoes her hair. Right now, with the, the significance of this is lost on us today, but this was a provocative and shameful thing to do. Women didn't undo their hair in public back then. She doesn't care about social norms. She undoes her hair and uses her hair to wash Jesus' feet. Just think about this. What an intimate thing to do. What an intimate 
moment. All eyes now are on this woman. Can you picture the tension in this scene? Imagine a dinner party, lots of people talking and chatting, and then silence. Everyone now is looking at this woman. Surely Jesus has turned around like it's depicted in this artwork. All eyes now are on this woman. You can feel the tension in the room. All right, we'll come back to the woman in a moment. Let's now focus on our second character, Simon. Verse 39 says, When the Pharisee, that's Simon, who had invited him, Jesus, saw this, he said to himself in his own mind, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Right, Simon's taking in the scene. He's probably annoyed that this woman has hijacked his dinner party. Maybe he's embarrassed, angry. We're not quite sure. But I'll tell you what we do know. He makes a judgment call here, doesn't he, in this verse. Have you noticed? He writes off the woman and Jesus. He thinks that Jesus, you know what? If you were respectable like me, if you were respectable, a teacher, a prophet, then you would know that you don't let these kind of people anywhere near you. You certainly don't let them do that to you. And here we get a bit of insight into Simon's character, don't we, into his heart. Simon is a, a good, respected, upright person, religious leader. But clearly, he prides himself on his good moral standing. And what's it made him? It's made him pretty self-righteous, hasn't it? Pretty judgmental. You see, the way he sees himself affects the way he sees others. He condemns the woman and the way he responds to Jesus. He can't understand this woman's lavish, devotional act of worship to Jesus. He can't understand it. He can't understand what would lead this woman to do such a thing. He can't understand someone being grateful for the gift of grace. He can't understand someone being that grateful for the gift of grace. He hasn't experienced it because he thinks he doesn't need it. You see, Simon sees this woman as she sees herself, right? Dirty, unclean, unlovable, and shameful. But you know what? That is not how Jesus sees her. Praise God, that is not how he sees you or me either. Later on in the passage, Jesus asks Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? It's a bit of an obvious question. Of course, all eyes are on her, but it's more than that. Do you see this woman? I mean, he doesn't, not like Jesus does. Jesus sees her as a woman made in the image of God with a hope and with a future. Pride and self-righteousness makes Simon unable to empathize with her. and It makes us unable to empathize with other people, particularly those we look down on. Okay, how does Jesus respond to Simon? Jesus knows what Simon is thinking. This is so ironic, right? Simon thinks if you were a prophet, you'd know Jesus is a prophet, the great prophet. And he does know what Simon is thinking. And he says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. And uh, Simon says, tell me, teacher. It's kind of indicating he doesn't really want Jesus to tell him. Tell me, teacher. Then Jesus tells a very short parable. This is it, verses 41 and 42. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had any money to pay him back. So he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. It's not a complicated parable, is it? Pretty, Pretty straightforward. 
But this little parable sums up the gospel well. Let me explain. Two people owe money. One's got a large debt, 500 days wages. One has a small debt, 50 days wages. Here's the point Jesus is making. Neither of them can pay. So while one person may have a larger debt, they're both in the same boat because neither of them have anything to pay with. If you can't pay, you can't pay. What does it matter how much you owe? Jesus is making this point. All our accounts are empty before God. So what does it matter what we owe? The message of the Bible is this. We cannot save ourselves. Simon doesn't recognize Jesus for who he really is, the savior of the world, because he doesn't think he needs saving. He either thinks, I don't have a debt, I don't owe anyone anything, or maybe if I do, it's really small and I can pay it off myself, or if I need a bit of help from God. But really, compared to this woman, get real. Jesus says to Simon, you know what, this leads Simon to treat Jesus very harshly. Not only think, I don't need him, but treat him very harshly. You see, Jesus says to Simon, you know what, I came into your house, you didn't give me any water for my feet, you didn't give me a kiss, you didn't put oil on my head. You see, back then in this ancient culture, it was the basics of hospitality for you to offer your servant to, to, to wash your feet. I mean, unpaved roads, open-toe sandals, their people's feet were filthy. At the very least, what you did was give your guest a towel and a bowl of water for them to do it themselves. Simon hasn't done this for Jesus. It's pretty normal to, when you're hosting a dinner party, when friends come over, you greet somebody, maybe with a kiss or a hug or an appropriate side hug, whatever that is. But Simon doesn't do this. He avoids Jesus as he comes in. For one reason or another, olive oil was a way people refreshed themselves back in those days. And this is what you did for guests. But Simon hasn't offered Jesus this either on three counts. Simon has failed the hospitality etiquette test. Zero out of three. Simon, blinded by his pride and self-righteousness, righteousness, excuse me, righteousness, thank you, has failed to recognize he is in the presence of greatness. Jesus, the God-man. Okay, now here's where it gets a little bit uncomfortable for people like me and maybe you. You see, it's so easy to point the finger at Simon, isn't it? I mean, it's so easy to go, this guy's so daft. What a loser. He's in the presence of greatness. What a prideful, arrogant so-and-so. How could he not see? It's so easy to do that. But you know what? I think a lot of us need to be asking ourselves, how much like Simon are we? How pride and self-righteous can we be? How judgmental can we be? I don't know about you, but I can be a lot like Simon. Uh, I'm ashamed to say this, but I, I often can think, look at other people and think, you know what, yeah, I'm a sinner, but at least I'm doing better than them. You ever thought that? You ever made yourself feel better at the expense of somebody else? Yeah, I, I might be a sinner, I'm pretty messed up, but at least I'm not as bad as them. Isn't that what Simon does? You know what this does to me? It just feeds my pride and my self-righteousness and then it blinds me to my real need for Jesus. Yeah, I guess I need Jesus, but not as much as that person. Lord, would you save me? Would you save us from this way of thinking? Well, thankfully, there is hope. 
There is hope for a prideful, self-righteous man like me, and his name is Jesus. Let's finish by focusing on Jesus' effect on this woman. We're almost done here. Now, it's no big assumption to imagine Jesus, uh, this woman encountering Jesus in an earlier chapter. This is taken from Luke chapter 7 beforehand. Jesus has done a lot of teaching and healing. So it's no great assumption to imagine Jesus, uh, this woman encountering Jesus, seeing a miracle, being drawn to him, hearing his teaching on God's forgiveness for all, hearing what it means to be a child of God. She's heard this teaching and she, she's accepted it. She, you're saying no matter what I've done, the God of the universe can forgive and wants a relationship with me? She hears Jesus is going to a dinner party. You know what she does? She shows up. Why is she there? Why is she there? To worship him. Right? This woman turns up to worship Jesus, to show her appreciation, her gratitude, her thankfulness to worship Jesus. Right? This message has affected her. It's changed her. It's given her a hope and a future. This is the power of Jesus. It's the power of the gospel that changed her lives. It changed her life, and it is still changing lives today. Remember the little parable Jesus told Simon, the question at the end of it? Who will love more, the one forgiven much or the one forgiven little? Of course, it is the one who is forgiven more. Even Simon gets that, and that's this woman. She has absolutely no false illusions about her past. She knows who she is. She knows what she's done. She's probably led a pretty messed up and broken life up until this point. But she approaches Jesus that night to honour him for what he's done, and she is overcome with gratitude. She cannot believe this gift of grace. Even after all I've done, the God of the universe can forgive me? That's the beauty of Jesus. That's the message we have to share. This is grace. This woman takes this alabaster jar of perfume and she uses it to pour over Jesus' feet. Now, when I was reading this, I kind of imagined her lugging this enormous alabaster jar of perfume to this dinner party. But no, it was actually really small, probably only about sort of 10, 15 centimetres large. Woman, women back then used to wear them around their necks. It was quite a skinny little fragile flask. And when you turned it over, little flask, you turned it over, it had a very tiny hole in the, at the top of it. So when you turned it over, only one drop would come out. And so women used to wear them around their necks to sort of beautify themselves. Now imagine this woman. Think of her profession, making herself beautiful, alluring to men, smelling nice. That was her thing. But she takes this jar of alabaster perfume to Jesus, and she wants to use the whole thing to honour Jesus. But the only way to do that, because remember, you turn it over, you just get one little drop comes out. The only way to really use it like this is to break the top of it and pour its entire contents on Jesus. But if you do that, then that's it. It's a one-time thing. But can you see what this woman is doing in this moment, in this act? She's pouring out her old self. You see that? She is giving up her old life in this act. She's saying, Jesus, I give my entire old life to you. What she's doing, she's repenting. Jesus' message of forgiveness has completely changed her life. She's overcome with gratitude. She's discarded her old life. And this is our great hope for new life in Jesus. That is the hope for all of us. That's the hope for a religious, self-righteous man like me. 
That's the hope for the absolute pagan who's lived the most sinful and wayward life you could imagine. And that's the hope for everybody in between. This is Jesus' incredible message. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can come to Jesus. He will forgive. He will heal. He will redeem. He will break the chains of religion and the shackles of sin. This is our great hope. Jesus says to this woman in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And only the God of the universe has the authority to forgive sins. Ignoring everybody else at the dinner party, Jesus zeroes in on this woman. She says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus forgives this woman. Why? Because of her incredible act of worship? Because of her incredible lavish act of devotion? No. Because of her faith in him. Her acts of devotion and worship, they are in response, as a result of her joy in being forgiven. Can I encourage us all this morning to think about responding like this woman does? She wasn't kidding herself about her past, right? She knew who she was. She's not hiding behind anything. She sees herself clearly. She recognizes her need for Jesus. If you identify in any way with this woman, if you're burdened by your past, if you feel chained to your sinful life, if you feel ashamed or alone or broken, then do what this woman does and come to Jesus. Maybe you're more like me. Maybe you identify more with Simon and you know you need to repent of your pride and self-righteousness. It's not too late for any of us to come to Jesus. Well, friends, what we're going to do now is we are going to respond in a beautiful way together by sharing in the Lord's Supper, in communion. It's an opportunity together to remember how Christ won forgiveness for us on the cross. Jesus, in his final words, says to this woman, I love it, it's beautiful, go in peace. That's not just a nice little thing to say, go in peace. I mean, it is a nice thing to say. But it means so much more, the richness of these words. Think about it. Go in peace. Jesus is saying, enjoy your newfound peace with God and peace with the people around you. Jesus is saying, go in peace. Know deep in your heart that God has forgiven you for your most evil thoughts, for your most shameful behavior. Be assured that nothing now stands between you and God. Go in peace. We want to celebrate that peace today.